0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for being here online. I love being here. Oh, good. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I just love being here. Oh. And I love sharing the Dharma with you. Let's start with some words from a good friend of mine, Zenju, Earthlyn Manuel, who uh, has a book out called The Shamanic Bones of Zen. She says, Ultimately, sanctuary is within. We walk spiritual paths by gathering ways of living that are in alignment with peace. Outer sanctuaries help us in doing so. When we are in a spiritual community, perfect or not, we see ourselves more clearly. We see the depth of our pain and rage while bowing or offering incense and flowers. We move so slowly that what is in our bodies cannot be overlooked. At first we might feel self-conscious in a community that observes our human frailty. Over time, the ritual and ceremony takes center stage, and you begin to see another side of yourself. Another side of life. The side of life goes unseen in the rush of daily living. Creating sanctuary within requires the practice of stillness and silence provided in outer sanctuaries. When we get a glimpse of the unseen, we are brought back from where we emerged be it the earth or the source of all life. Suzuki Roshi once said that uh, if we're all doing the same thing, I can see you. But if we're all doing different things, I can't recognize you. So when we, when you first, arrived, how many people are new here, by the way? Welcome, welcome, we're glad you're here. Uh, and things look really weird. Right? Like there's all this bowing and all this incense. People are really quiet, or they're not. It gets really loud sometimes. Chanting in a different language. It's kind of weird. But I'll let you know a little secret. It all does the same thing. Buddhist practice at its core invites us into relationship with our body. It invites us to look and see what's happening, but not what's happening with our stories about our bodies, not what's happening with our stories or ideas or judgments about our life, but really what's happening underneath all of that. What's it like to be me? So when I first started practice way back when just before the Ice Age I really thought that there was this thing called real Buddhism right? and that if I could just figure out Buddhism without all the sort of cultural stuff because of my own history with religion and religiosity and dogma I really thought that the problem was culture it wasn't the uh, stuff itself right and so i came to buddhist practice carrying that along with lots of white supremacist and patriarchal ideas about what's real and what's not real and textual validation and all kinds of other crap but the point is is i thought that if i could just read the stuff and i sat meditation enough i could figure out what real buddhism was and uh, one of my friends brought me to San Francisco Zen Center way back in 1995. We were going to have, it was a Wednesday night, and we were going to have uh, sit zazen, sit meditation, and then have dinner, and then go to a talk. That's what my friend told me. Didn't tell me that right after zazen, much like Zen centers everywhere, there's a service. And my little traumatized kid freaked out. All that bowing, the incense, this guy in the front who was old and looked like they were telling everybody what to do. Either that or we were playing follow the leader. I couldn't decide which. And I freaked out. And I told my friend, I'm never coming back here again. A few years later, I, um, I was doing a chaplaincy training program. And it was further down in uh, the peninsula from San Francisco, and uh, I was riding with someone who would later become my teacher, but we, he was one of the teachers, and he lived in San Francisco, so we drove down together, and we spent a lot of time talking and communicate, you know, having conversations. I thought, oh, this guy's really kind of cool. And so I asked him to kind of help me figure out Sanga, and I said to him, I'm never, but it's not going to be Zen because you guys are too, too much. Y'all are too weird, too much incense, too much bowing. It's just too much. It's like, okay, cool. No worries. And so I would go off and I would do retreats or I would do these things and I would come back and I would talk to him about them. And finally he said, Why don't you come and just stay for a minute? See what it's like like, oh God, all those ceremonies, all those people in those robes and all that stuff. That's just too much culture for me. And he's like, well just come and meditate and then when everybody's going upstairs you can peel off and go to your uh, back then the men's dorm was just off the the meditation hall. You can peel off, go to your room, come back up for breakfast. Cool. That works for me. And I did that for about a week And then I thought, oh, man, because the morning service actually happens directly above what was then the morning's dorm. So I could hear everything, which was great, because then I could know when to go have breakfast. Um, and I thought, oh, you know, I might just, let's just go check it out. I'd been reading um, uh, the book of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, which was an English translation version of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I work in hospice, so, you know, so I go upstairs one morning. I follow everybody up. Unbeknownst to me, it was the morning for the full moon ceremony. So for those of you who are new, the full moon ceremony is sort of like Catholic mass on steroids. <laughs> lots of bowing. Lots of group chanting. Lots of call and response stuff. It's, and it's long. It's a very long service. And I, was, I figured out that if I just could get myself situated in the middle, I wouldn't have to do anything special, right? Um, that's a secret for all of you who are new. If you sit in the middle, somebody else will lead you around. If you're on the ends, the likelihood of you having to figure out what's next, higher. Um, so I'm stuck in the middle. And I'm trying to figure out, how the hell can I get out of here? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm way too proud to not try to fit in or look good, so I was doing everything everybody was doing. And I, real, I remembered a line from the book about, uh, basically, the author of the, the Tibetan book, of Living Diet, basically says, it doesn't matter where you go, it doesn't matter who your teachers are, it doesn't matter your lineage, doesn't matter any of that stuff. What matters is find a place so that you can stay and work on your shit. And about halfway through the ceremony, I thought, oh, you know what? I could stay here and work on this stuff, right? Like, I don't have to carry this anymore because I could look at it, right? I was pushed right up against my issues my trauma, my uh, difficulties with religion, my ideas about what it meant to practice. And I still believe that today. Zen is a place where I can stay. And over the years, I've been pushed up against a lot of things. Some of it mine, some of it other people's, some of it institutional. Somewhere along the lines, I figured out. So you'll hear lots of reasons. Like, let's just take bowing, right? We'll start with bowing. I think it's the thing that freaks the most people out. We do it a lot. Basically, in Zen, when in doubt, bow. But what is it to bow? What are we bowing to? Why do we bow? When we bow, every muscle in our body is enacted into response, right? Even at a gasho, if we're standing up, you know, we, we bow and our back and our arms and we're trying to get in the right form. Oh by the way, like I'm not gonna really tell you all like the form stuff because that's between you and your teachers and all of that. And and I don't think that's what's important about what we're doing. What's important is how is it tell me something about the nature of my existence? So at one point I heard we're bowing to ourselves when we're doing prostrations, right? We're not bowing to the Buddha, even though we're facing the Buddha statue. Other people have said we're bowing to all the Buddhas and ancestors throughout space and time. On one hand, that's, that's beautiful and it's magical. And it's true. At the same time, there's this way in which my, the practice of bowing puts me so in touch with my body, And what's happening in my body that I'm brought to this present moment. You know, my forehead hits the floor. And I'm all the way here. Sometimes. Sometimes I'm just going through the motions. But I invite you to start to think about it in those terms. What's going on? What's happening for me in this process, whether it's bowing, or it's chanting, or it's offering incense, or it's sitting meditation, What is it that's at work in you? What's it like to be you having this human experience? And so ultimately, it really doesn't matter about what I think Because what happens is is the quieter I get, the more in touch with my body I get, the more my practice begins to speak to me. And the thing we, I think we can all agree on is that our practice speaks to us in a very quiet voice. Our life speaks to us in a very quiet voice. And so we need to find ways to get quiet so that we can hear it. So if I'm really paying attention when I bow or when I'm chanting and I'm chanting with my whole body not just like going through the motion. oh I have this chant memorized so I don't have to really think about it and I can just go through the motions and oh my god I'm really tired I've been up since 4 o'clock and blah blah, blah. or I can just really chant with my whole body and be really present It's the great thing about chanting in languages that aren't English, because I can't think about the... That's not necessarily true. I actually speak enough Japanese that sometimes when we're chanting in Japanese, I can... And then there are points at which I criticize the translation. (laughs) But when I can put all that down and stop thinking about the words and thinking about the process and just start to practice it, set down my opinions and my judgments and my ideas for just a moment. Pay attention to my breath. And is it deep in my belly as I'm chanting or is it up in my chest? Can I notice the sounds that are entering my ear at the same time that sounds are exiting my mouth? So that we're all chanting as one body. When I'm bowing, can I really notice as my muscles activate and which ones don't, which ones pull and which ones contract? When I'm sitting zazen, when I'm sitting meditation, can I notice my posture? And we pay a a lot of attention in Zen to our posture. The founder of our lineage in Japan wrote an entire fascicle on how, on our posture, how to sit zazen properly. It's called the hukans zengi. But when you look at it, what happens is, is you realize our posture actually is designed in such a way that it supports our our, it allows our body to support itself. So our muscles don't have to work so much, right? So we're sitting on our sitting bones and I'm talking about sitting cross-legged here. Um, if you sit in a chair, the, the similar things happen. Like you're trying to find a posture that supports your entire body so that you can sit for a, a period of time. But when we're sitting cross-legged, you know, we're sitting on our sitting bones, And our feet are crossed in front of us. And we're sitting in such a way that our Weight is actually sort of evenly distributed between our sitting bones and our thighs so that our knees are touching the ground, but our weight shouldn't be on our knees. Our weight should be on our thighs and our sitting bones. And our back is arranged in such a way that the muscles in our back don't have to hold our body. And We lower our shoulders and pull them back a little bit so our chest opens up so we can breathe. arrange our neck so that our head, which is actually kind of heavy, can rest on our neck and shoulders so that we can get quiet, so that our body can just exist long enough for us to notice the rest of us. And it's interesting because you sit with other people and you can notice all kinds of things. Sometimes we notice the stories we have about the people we're sitting with. Sometimes we notice the stories we have about ourselves. Oh God, are my knees really hurting again? When am, like. Oh, my back is really sore today. I think I'm going to need to rest more. The stories that I can only hear when it's quiet. But also, something happens when we're together, right? When we're all doing the same thing. None of us are ever doing it exactly the same. Even when we're following the form and we're doing the form the way it's intended, we're all doing it completely different. And as somebody who uh, is now supposed to be paying attention, I notice all of the ways, and I I get what Suzuki Rishi is pointing at, this idea of we're all doing exactly the same thing. But then there's this little, subtle way in which each individual person expresses that practice in their own way, even when it looks exactly the same. And you start to notice things like, oh, so-and-so's not having a good day, I can really notice this. Or so-and-so's not even in the room right now, they're really struggling to stay here. Right, how many times have we been doing something and recognized that we're not even in the room? Sitting meditation, even. All of a sudden the bell rings and you're like, wait, where the hell was I? I heard a couple weeks ago a really wonderful definition of community. And it was a a black woman specifically speaking about her experiences in community with other black women, which I paid attention to. And what I really got from this was when she said, like, this is the what, like, we're all individuals, we're not a monolith. And yet we can still support each other and cheer each other on and, and really uplift each other without having to lose our own individual identity. We're all individuals coming together collectively being ourselves fully, and encouraging each other to be themselves fully. And as she was speaking, I thought, that sounds a lot like what I think Sangha should be. We have this collection of people. And we should be encouraging each other to be our best selves, to find our best selves, to express our best selves. Not through our words. But in our activity, in our practice together. In the ways that we show up here, in this place. Because see, something's really interesting. When I'm fully myself, without all of my, without all of my bullshit, right? Like all of the things that happen up here when I'm really myself and I show up as myself in a way that gives everyone else who's around me permission to show up as themselves right because because of the way interdependence works you know we're all mutually creating this moment we're all interdependent we're all here not just with each other and not just as each other but because of each other. And if I can bring my whole self into that moment, and when other people bring themselves fully in that same way, it gives me permission to be myself and it gives other people the permission. So that when we're all doing that, when we're all showing up as ourselves, we just support each other to be ourselves fully, all the way. But when we get caught up in the minutia of things, when we get caught up in it's supposed to be this way, anytime you've spent any time in a Zen temple and you're going over forms and practices and stuff, you'll hear it always somebody in the room will say, we've always done it this way. No, we haven't. In my 30 plus years of practice, we have never, ever always done it anyway. We have these forms and we understand what the forms are but then what happens is, is people engage the forms and it's never that way. We just keep trying to get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to this form. But when we give up the idea and are thinking about it and let it invade our bones and become our sanctuary, what happens is, is it works its magic. Practice is at once totally logical and all about the body and the physicality of it. But it's also magical. It's also permissive and beautiful and ineffable, which means it's it's unable to be spoken. There have been so many times when I'm sitting in a group and I can just feel the magic of that moment. More than once, I've sat in rooms full of people meditating and cried. Not for any reason, but just because of some magical alchemy that happens in this moment that allowed me to release something into this space and know it was going to be held, Because I stopped thinking about it. Because I just allowed myself to be here in this room, in this place, with these people, in this moment. So work out the details with your teacher. Choro is guiding the Sangha. And so, you know, she's bringing her experiences and and her training and helping everyone to do the same thing. My invitation is for you to do that, but to really start to investigate what's happening for me. What's it like to be me? Whether I'm annoyed, or I'm happy, or I'm sad, Whatever it is, what's it like to... Not what's the story behind what's making me sad or any of that stuff. What's it like to be you having that experience? If I get so wrapped up in the story, I miss the magic that happens when I just go, what's it like to be me? We're creating sanctuary in every moment. Together. And when we enact these things, when we enact our practice, in whatever way we're enacting it, it gives us an opportunity to truly, deeply connect with ourselves, which is how we heal. I'm a firm believer in collective wisdom. I don't think that I'm the smartest one in the room, most of the time. Most of the time I believe that. But just <laughs> I'm still a person. And so now I want to invite the collective wisdom to come forth. Uh, either in asking a question, asking for some clarification, or if you have an idea or an insight or something got activated for you, share it with us and bring it forth. Yes. Chico-san. Yes. So, um,
2: that question always gets me, what's it like being you? Because I've never been anybody else. So, is this, can you ask instead, what am I feeling right now?
1: As long as you can let go of the story of that feeling mm-hmm. and explore the nature of the experience of it rather than your stories about it or your opinions about it. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I'm angry, I have a big story about why what is making me angry, right? And I can get into the details of what's making me angry, which isn't really going to transform anything for me. But if I look at what's it like to be angry? What happens for me when I'm angry? What happens in my body? What happens in my guts? And then I can learn how to practice with that so that I'm not being dragged around by that experience, mm-hmm. right? I'm almost always going to be dragged around by my ideas about something or my opinions about something because it traps me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It solidifies something in me. So that's what I mean when I say, what's it like to be you? It's, not, it's, it's a way to sort of look underneath the covers, so to speak,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Right. <laughs> And however that works for you, like figure out your own language for it, and then practice that, because that's where the alchemy happens. Thank you, Rich.
3: Um, I just want to ask you first of all about this. You mentioned at the beginning of your talk about trauma. Uh huh. Can we talk about that? Sure. Is that okay to talk about? Yeah. I can relate to that, um, I've been studying this topic, Mm -hmm. I'm not a therapist or psychologist or anything, but I've been just reading this book, The Body Keeps the Score, Mm -hmm. about trauma, and one of the things that this author talks about is how dissociation is a common feature of people who've had trauma, Mm -hmm. that they tend to disassociate from their own felt experience in the body, and that it occurs to me that as somebody who's had some degree of trauma myself, uh, part of the thing that that makes Zen so great is that you're just sitting down to get in touch with your body Mm -hmm. and be in a place where it's safe Mm -hmm. to be in your body Mm -hmm. and not disassociate. And not feel like, I have to run away because this place is dangerous and I can't trust these people and I can't trust the weird people with their weird ways. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to let go of that... Those stories of I'm not safe and it's not okay, mm. and I got I'm just going to do this and see what happens. So right what is, the, is the is the method, you know. Yeah, and that's what's coming.
1: What I'm hearing from you, from but I want to want to I want to encourage us to be careful because on this healing journey, and and let the body lead the way, right? So sometimes we want to heal. And so we try to force ourselves through it. So when I was training at Tassajara, right, during the practice period, three months, you're locked in the woods with the same group of people. They're really annoying, they get on all of your nerves. (laughs) And it's all their fault. (laughs) And I was also sick at the time. And I was so angry. And so tired of being sick. And just, I I would sit down on the cushion and I would just rage. And it hurt my body. Until one of the practice leaders said to me, well, just take a walk. Like, you don't have to sit there. You can just take a walk. You can practice meditation while you're walking. Which then gave my body permission to do something different so that I I wasn't trying to constrict it into my ideas about what it meant to heal. And that's what I mean. We have to be careful and let our body lead the way. Sometimes dissociation is a benefit. And we have to let ourselves do that. Because our body's protecting us. Because we're not ready. And so, and particularly around trauma. As someone with some mental health challenges, I also have to pay attention to that. And walk this line between living with my mental health difficulties and sort of wallowing in them. So this, this balancing act of permission and but letting whatever that deepest quietest part is let that lead the way we'll always screw it up when we try to force it and we'll miss the mark yes tell me your name Balam? Balam. Balam. Thank you. Uh,
0: Thank you. Um, Sorry. struck a lot of nerves today. Uh, But thank you for your words. The words about community and being yourself and peeling off of those layers that are not us. Recently been meditating a lot about how we live in a world that in almost every space we walk in, we leave parts of ourselves out Mm -hmm. because... We are not welcomed in Mm -hmm. as ourselves. Uh, Every morning I have to think about how I dress, Mm -hmm. how I do my hair. And it's a painful struggle to Mm -hmm. live in my space and try to break through. Mm -hmm. So, Part of my being here is that search for the authentic self that can live in this world.
1: Mm -hmm. Just be me. First, I want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for being vulnerable and being real. So I grew up a sissy on a farm. Does everybody know what the word sissy means? <laughs> and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, even when I sort of knew I was queer, like what, what kind of queer, what ideas about it, right? And then you come into this practice and sometimes you hear, these things about there's no self. You should shed yourself. And I was like, look, motherfucker, it took me a long time (laughs) to be okay, and you want me to get that, set that aside? Are you crazy? But that's not the message. The message is, there's no permanent, fixed abiding self and if anybody tries to tell you differently walk away and I, want, I would like to say that spiritual practice is a safe place but it's not we're going to come up against our stuff and it's going to be hard and we're going to have people who don't get us and that's okay Because what it really gives me, what our practice gives me, all of this time spent in my body, is that I know what's true for me. And the more that I can rest in what's true for me, I don't really care what's true for you. I don't care what you think about what's true for me. Because I'm the only one who sleeps on my pillow at night. So I want to say you're going to end up facing hard truths, And sometimes it's because people don't act appropriately towards you. And it happens in spiritual community and outside of spiritual community. But the question again is, can I stay? I spent, uh, one of my early sashins, I spent the entire time Being poisoned. I'm allergic. I was at the time. I was allergic to nuts, and every time they wouldn't tell me that there was nuts in the food. Exactly. And I was so angry. And this wonderful teacher, who was Eno at the time, his name is Mark Lancaster. And he sat me down and he said, "Look, we're big enough for you to be angry here." Nobody had ever said that to me before. What I was told was, my anger's scary, my anger's this, my anger's that, la 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 la. Nobody ever said, You can be angry here, but you can't do this. Basically I was screaming at people. <laughs> but the permission of like you can be angry here was so different for me. It was again that invitation to just stay. Because you can do the hard things here. And yeah, it's hard in the world. Homophobes, transphobes, racists, sexists, people in power who don't really give a shit about you. Capitalism sucks and is gonna kill us all eventually. But there's I can be quiet still. I can find silence I can hear myself and I can love myself. I don't have to wait for those people to change to, to heal. My liberation happens inside of my oppressions. If I waited till the oppression stopped, I'd never go anywhere. I hope that helps. Yes, sir. Tell me your name. Adam. Adam. You mentioned the word alchemy a few times. Can mm. you speak more about
3: how you see alchemical process in Zen practice?
1: To me, alchemy is about transformation, right? You go from one thing, transformation happens, and then there's something else. Sometimes it's a, a deeper experience of something, but it's still transformative, right? So when I started the practice, I started because I was just overwhelmed with grief and I couldn't function. Through practice, that slowly changed so that my grief is now useful. It's become a skill set for me. It's how I can do hospice work because I'm not afraid of my own grief anymore. So that's the alchemy. It's the transformation of our ideas and, and our way of being. It's transformation. And it's also recognition of the transformation because the truth is, is the transformation's happening anyway. But can I see it? Can I be aware of it? Can I, can I help it along sometimes? So that's what I mean by the alchemy of our practice. And in some ways, it, it's, it's a holding of both the, the sort of really logical, philosophical ideas of practice and the sort of sacred, magical, unknowable, unspeakable, but still knowable stuff, right? And it's the way those interplay together. Because alchemy is not just science. There's a bit of magic in there too. Practice should transform us, but not away from ourselves, but deeper into ourselves. It's often said there's nothing holy or sacred, and yet. But because we make everything holy and sacred is how we get to the nothing holy, nothing sacred. Because we're already Buddha, we can venerate all the Buddhas and ancestors through space and time. Because we're already enlightened, we we can create alchemy in our lives and get closer to having that be expressed in this body and mind. Yeah. Inosa, how are we on time?
2: 11.07.
1: What time are we supposed to stop?
2: When we're done. <laughs> 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 okay, let's
1: have one more question or comment or something. And, uh, and also, about one o'clock. We'll be gathering together again, and you can bring those questions. Yes, ma'am.
2: I'd like to try and make a comment that makes sense about what you said about there is no permanent self. Uh-huh. Could if, you
1: say your name first, please? Oh, I'm
2: sorry. I'm Constance.
1: Constance?
2: Um, because when I first really committed to sitting regularly and started like going deeper in into myself and... It was really troubling to see all the contradictions mm-hmm. of who I was. Like, oh, that can't be me. I'm that, that's not part of who I am, you know. And so those contradictions at first, I was beating myself up mm-hmm. all the time about not being a consistent, you know, pure being, being somebody that's this way. Mm-hmm. And then um, the more I sat with it I felt like you know there's just so much freedom in that mm-hmm. that we are all many people mm-hmm. many things many ways of being and when we see it we just have to let it be mm-hmm. and do that transforming of becoming all that we are mm-hmm. the all those parts right and then we really can know who we are, everything that we are, and accept it. Right. So I'm really united to what you said.
1: Yeah. And I also want to acknowledge something you said, which is you started to sit consistently. Something that we don't talk a lot about is that when we sit consistently, when we meditate consistently, whatever form that takes for us, When we spend time quietly with ourselves and we try to quiet the distractions consistently over and over and over again, they build on each other. And and that's that's the piece that sometimes we forget is the consistency part. You know, I've sat meditation pretty much every day, since at least once a day, since 1995. And I can say that over time, the quality and the... Uh, the ineffability, the, the things I can't speak about, for me are much deeper in meditation now than they were 30 years ago but it grows out of that consistency. The other thing is is to recognize that we change constantly because we're constantly arising with other people. This moment arises all of us together. So I'm the person that's out here with my mouth moving, hopefully in touch with the interconnectedness of all of us. This afternoon it'll be a whole different group of people. So the alchemy of that moment, the the arising of that moment will change the mouse that's moving in some kind. Do you understand? Does that make sense? So of course we're all always evolving and always changing. Because we're always exposed because even our partners, right? If you've lived with somebody for 30, 60, 80 years, that person is different every day. So even that arising with them, if if, you know, that's gonna be different. So who you are in that relationship changes every day. And to give yourself permission to not stay stuck in my ideas about who I'm supposed to be owning up to being a sexist, racist, capitalist person and and seeing those parts of myself has allowed me to then have alchemy happen so that those things become less activated so that I can be more actively anti-racist or more actively anti-patriarchal We're actively anti-capitalist, anti-ableist. But it only comes through the truth-telling of like, oh yeah, I was raised a white guy in America. That comes with things. Privilege and power and ideas. But until I can sort of own those and name those and be those, then I'm never going to be able to not enact those. Because I'm gonna be way too busy trying to hide them. I'm a good person. Sometimes. 30 years later, sometimes I'm still an asshole. And that's okay, like that's okay. I think sometimes we just expect too much of ourselves. And we see, like, those moments when, you know, you cuss somebody out on the freeway as some failure of your spiritual practice. Or if you're struggling. I know lots of people who, who think, like, oh, I've been practicing so long, why am I so struggling with this? Because you're a person. And you don't struggle with it every day. And, you know, it's like, we're still people at the end of the day. And there is no... Um, I know lots of people who have practiced even longer than me, who are still not always enlightened beings. Still create suffering for other people. And that's okay. Doesn't mean they're not great teachers, they're not doing their thing or any of that stuff. It just means they're people. The question is, how do I show up in those moments when I'm not my best self? Do I show up defensive and trying to protect some idea I have about myself? Or do I show up and really listen to what's being told to me and see it as a this person loves me enough to give me feedback that's really important for me? I hope that helps. I think I got distracted there for a minute and went off on a tangent. Sometimes I get on a soapbox and I can't step off. So I hope you come this afternoon. We'll spend some more time with these ideas, uh, do some practices to sort of deepen our relationship to them. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your practice.